1: It's our continuing look at the crucifixion of Jesus next on Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. Hi there and welcome to today's edition of Abounding Grace from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Today, we return to the book of Luke and our mini-series called The Crucifixion of Jesus. This is our second installment. We're in Luke 23, verses 26 through 49, taking a look at the various facets of the crucifixion of Jesus and what took place and why. Won't you join us for a very special look at the crucifixion of Jesus? Here's Pastor Gary Wagner on today's edition of Abounding Grace.
2: Dr. Luke learned quite well from his mentor and patient, the Apostle Paul, that without the gospel, without the cross, there is no gospel. And he was writing to illustrate what Paul had spoken in 1 Corinthians 15 when he said, "'Now I make known to you, brethren, which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand by, which also you are saved.' If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So as far as the Apostle Paul was concerned, Luke and Luke understood this. The gospel is about historical events, particularly focusing on the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And without these historical events, there is no gospel. Jesus died on a cross, literally, historically, to save sinners. It pleased God to crush him as our substitute, and it was wicked hands that crucified him. And those wicked hands were fully accountable for their sins. It was the Lord and Savior and friends of sinners who suffered such excruciating agony on that cross. And it was hundreds of years before Christians would even think of wearing crosses around their necks as jewelry. And to this day, Shiny gold and silver crosses on expensive necklaces bear absolutely no resemblance to that old, rugged, bloody instrument of Roman execution on which Christ died. Crosses as jewelry mean nothing, as is evident from the fact that many rappers and rock singers such as Madonna and Katy Perry wear crosses as part of their immodest Signature fashions. And beloved, keep these things clear in your mind. Because there is no relationship between a pretty little cross and the instrument of execution on which our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, really, really died. Now last week we started looking at the crucifixion of Jesus, particularly from the book of Luke and why he included certain events in his account. Prior to that, we studied about the intensification of his sufferings in Gethsemane, and in his betrayal and his trials. And today, we're going to continue to study Christ's cruel death on the cross of Calvary. So notice first verse 31. This is an interesting statement. It's a little obscure, but it really isn't after you think about it. Jesus continues to speak to these women and bystanders that we talked about last week. And he says, And if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now, green trees don't burn too well, right? Have you ever tried to burn a freshly caught green tree in your fireplace? You won't get very far with it except possibly a lot of smoke. You want it to be seasoned. You, you want it to be dried out. And then, of course, it will burn quite well. So what is Jesus telling us here? That is his proclamation of his greatness. He says, I am a green tree. I'm full of sap. I'm full of life, vitality, strength, and salvation. And I am still the king. And if this green tree, referring to himself, is cut down and burned, as difficult as that would be, then be absolutely certain that all these dying, dry trees full of sin and unbelief and impittentance will be easily and quickly destroyed in the flames. And don't ever forget that. That is what he is saying. If this green tree died, as difficult as it was, how easy is it going to be for dead, dry trees full of unbelief to be totally burned up in the flames of hell? Make sure, beloved, you are not one Of those dead, dried up trees. Then Luke makes a big deal about the two thieves on the cross. In fact, only Luke talks about the conversion of the one thief. And let's read about them now in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals. One on the right, and the other on the left. Luke continues this down now into verse 39. One of the criminals who was hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered in rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we are indeed suffering justly. For we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, Christ, said to him, truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. You know the story. Christ is crucified between two thieves. One thief is a fool who hurls abuse at Christ even while he is dying and he's in intense agony and he so hates Christ that he can't help but hurl this abuse. If you are the Christ, then save us and yourself. And Christ is being deeply humiliated by just dying with this wicked, unbelieving thief. And then there is the second thief. And this thief is there in Luke to remind us and impress us with the theme of Luke. Do you remember what the theme is in the book of Luke? What's the main thing Luke wants you to remember about Jesus? that he came to seek and to save that which is lost. Even in death, even in this excruciating pain, the likes of which no one has ever experienced, the desire of Christ's heart was to save this penitent, believing criminal who does not deserve to be saved. So here on the cross... You and I must surely be impressed with the grace, the mercy, and the love, and the selfless commitment of the Lord Jesus Christ to save sinners who don't deserve to be saved. First of all, this thief rebukes the other thief. What are you doing talking like this, you fool? We deserve to die. Now, did you notice everything this thief said? Remember, Luke is concise in everything he tells his readers. But oh, the richness of all his words. He says to the other thief, we deserve death. This man is innocent. He doesn't deserve death. And then he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, here is a thief calling Jesus by his first name, as it were. This thief is already attracted to Jesus. He doesn't say, sir. He doesn't say, your majesty. He calls him Jesus. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Just remember me, the thief says, when you come into your kingdom. You see, he believes what Jesus has been teaching. Jesus is able to save sinners. Please save me. Jesus has a great kingdom in which there is life and forgiveness of sins. I want to be in that kingdom, Jesus. I believe in you. I know I'm guilty. I know you're innocent. I know I deserve to die. But I believe you are in the business of saving undeserving sinners. And I pray, O Lord, that you would save me. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you today, in just a few hours, you shall be with me in paradise. No more pain, no more curses, No more crucifixions, no more anguish, no more death. Today he says to the sinner, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus didn't say, now you've got to do this or you've got to do that. You've got to earn enough points with me to get into heaven. Jesus said, you've asked me to save you. Today you shall. Be with me in paradise. Right there, you have justification by faith alone. This thief couldn't do anything else hanging on that cross. Jesus didn't say, well, you've got to make yourself worthy first. You know, you've got to keep the Ten Commandments first. You've got to be baptized first. No, this poor thief deserved to go to hell, and he said, Jesus, remember me. And Jesus said, Today you will be with me in paradise. There's the gospel, my friends. It is so simple. But people miss it. They say, Surely I've got to do something. Surely is there something more? I have to do. Beloved, there's nothing you can do. It's simply outstretched, empty hands, receiving whatever Christ puts in them. That is faith. Today, you shall be with me in paradise. The Lord Jesus Christ says that to you, if you believe in him right this moment. And someday, those of you who are believers and you face death and it comes creeping upon you, scaring the wits out of you, remember what Jesus said to the thief and hear him say it to your heart. As you are about to leave this life and death, don't worry. In just a few minutes, you will be with me in paradise and there will be no more pain, and there will be no more death. Now, you know, a lot of times people want to put off receiving Christ. They say they have a lot that they think they have to do. And they have more fun that they want to have. Now, beloved, I've actually heard people say that. They say, well, we intend someday to become a Christian, but we, we just want to have a lot more fun before we do that. And Some of them think that they can just wait until they're on their deathbed. Hopefully, you see, I can just live a good life and be conscious enough on my deathbed to receive Christ. And then I'm in. After all, look at the thief on the cross. That was a deathbed conversion. Yeah, there are such things as deathbed conversions. It is possible for a person to live a life of wickedness, and then just a few moments before he dies, receive Christ and become a Christian and enter eternity with God. After all, there is this deathbed conversion in the Bible, but remember, that's the only deathbed conversion in the Bible. They are very far and few in between. Do not. Bank on having one. When the Lord Jesus came into this world, he was in the company of angels and shepherds and wise men. And when he passed out of this world, he was in the company of thieves and criminals. Pilate didn't have to do it that way that day. Pilate decided to have these criminals crucified with Jesus to continue his humiliation. But but even though Pilate had one reason for crucifying Jesus with these two thieves, God had another reason. The degrading of Jesus by being crucified between two thieves was something God had planned and prophesied centuries before. In Isaiah 53, 12, it says, And he, that is the Messiah, was numbered with the transgressors, Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. You see, God had planned all of this. This degrading of Jesus like this was a way of God proclaiming to the world that Christ identifies with sinners because he came into the world to save sinners. You receive him the way the thief on the cross received him. And he will be your Savior throughout eternity. Now notice the restraint in verse 33. This is all Luke says about Christ's crucifixion. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. He doesn't describe the crucifixion. All he says is, they crucified him. Now, I have some descriptions of crucifixions in my library that literally border on obscene in their description. Death by crucifixion, I have said, was the cruelest and most degrading form of punishment ever devised by human depravity. And I'm not going to read all of those descriptions to you. But there was a first century witness to a crucifixion in Israel. And that eyewitness report was written down and discovered in a Jewish tomb in 1968. And so here is a brief brief description from someone who saw a literal crucifixion take place. And he said, the feet were joined almost parallel both transfixed by the same nail at the heels, with the legs adjacent. The knees were doubled, the right one overlapping the left. The trunk was contorted. The upper limbs were stretched out, each stabbed with a nail in the forearm. Now, my friends, that's all I really want to know. I don't want to know anything else. On the cross in utter humiliation, Christ felt this catastrophic curse of God for sin in himself. Klaus Schilder said this, Listen carefully. He himself led the process of events to this point. He Himself arranged His feet upon the accursed wood. He manipulated the nails and the hammer. He, our priest, who offered Himself for us, He nailed Himself to the cross. He has slain Himself as our sacrifice, all for us. Oh, the humiliation of it. Oh, the sovereignty of it, oh, the glory of it, unquote. Did you notice what Luke called the place Christ was crucified? He called it by one of its original names, the skull, Golgotha, or the place of the skull. Because if you happen to be there and you stand back and you use your imagination... The cliff underneath the hill where he was crucified looks somewhat somewhat like the face of a skull. And it wasn't an accident that the place God planned from all eternity for Christ to be crucified was on the place of the skull. What was the promise of the gospel first made in the scriptures to follow Adam in Genesis 3.15? It says, whereas the seed of the serpent shall crush your heel, you, the seed of the woman, shall crush his head, his skull. And in those metaphors, all the way back to the beginning of the human race, God is saying, though evil is powerful, evil and Satan will not have the last word. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, The seed of the woman will come and crush the serpent's head and the end of the power of evil in the world and it will save people from the consequences of that evil. So there, 2,000 years ago, Jesus was led to Golgotha and on the top of that hill that looked like a skull, that cross was planted, as it were, in the crushing of that skull symbolizing that what was taking place that day was the utter defeat of Satan forever and the liberty that God's people have who share in that death through his power. Luke only records two sayings of Christ while he hung on the cross, although there were seven sayings, again, because they fit his theme. Luke quotes Jesus in verse 34, and then again down in verse 46. Jesus said in verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, we see two things throughout Christ's crucifixion. We see His compassion and kindness, and we see the cruelty and the evil of man. Now, here He was experiencing excruciating pain. And he's concerned about the welfare of the people around him that have rejected him and are now crucifying him. You see the compassion here? What is he praying for God to do? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. They don't know who I am. And his words have a specific reference. This isn't a prayer for everyone in the whole wide world who simply picks up a Bible and reads it. Christ's words had a specific reference to the people involved in his rejection and his crucifixion. They were crucifying him out of ignorance of who he really was. They were being moved along by the crowds and ordered by They're commanding officers. And so for these people, he prays, Father, forgive them. Out of their ignorance, they do what they do. Here you see a compassionate Jesus who came to seek and to save sinners, praying that the Lord would spare not only the people around him, but the city of Jerusalem from immediate
1: destruction.